I'm really excited about this month-long series that we're going to be doing. It's on the life of David. We titled it The Shadow King, but it's on the life of David. It's coming out of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and into some of it into 2 Samuel as we look at his life. And I'm not going to just assume that you know who David is. I'm not going to assume that you know his entire life story. Some of you may, and you may know a lot of the details about his life. But just to, so we're all on the same page, some of the basic information that you need to know about David. One of the things you should know is that he is the most famous ancestor of Jesus. I hadn't really thought of it in these terms before, starting to you know, study uh, this, for this series, but uh, in the New Testament, have you ever noticed that Jesus, uh, he's not referenced as the son of Abraham, he's not referenced as the son of Jacob, he's referenced as the son of David. That's just an interesting thing, a reference point to King, king David. Uh, he was an incredibly successful king of Israel, he was a great leader, he was a great warrior. Uh, but in, in addition, he was a great poet. He was an incredible musician. And for all the things that we can admire about David, and there's a ton, uh, he was a man with flaws. He was a man who uh, left a stain on his life record with some of his choices. Some of the more famous ones would be like adultery, murder, right? Those are pretty big stains to have on one's life record. But he also was a pretty lousy husband. He also was a pretty lousy father. There's not going to, you're not, if you read a book on marriage or a book on parenting, there's not going to be a chapter on uh, the things you can learn from David in the positive. Uh, so there's some stains on his record. And here's, here's the difference between how the Bible views history and how some of our modern day Americans view history. You may have noticed uh, in recent years, there seems to be like this violent, almost irrational push to erase some of our American history, like tearing down statues and renaming schools and renaming military bases. You probably have noticed these kinds of things. And ostensibly, the reason is supposed to be that these people have flaws, on, they have stains on their life record. They were imperfect people. Well, thankfully, the Bible does not take that approach to history. The Bible has preserved an accurate, uh, realistic uh, record of history that you and I can relate to, that you and I can learn from. Yes, we can learn from the inspirational part of people's lives and things that we admire about the, the people that are recorded in, in God's Word, but we can also learn from their mistakes because you and I are imperfect people. And we can, we can learn from their mistakes and, and hopefully from their stained life record so that we don't repeat some of those mistakes in our own lives. Here's the other neat thing about the Bible's perspective on history in that it records the, the admirable alongside the, uh, the things that aren't so admirable. Uh, it's, it's a good lesson for us that God uses imperfect people like you and like me to do meaningful things in this life. There's a pretty short list of people in, in God's Word that don't have uh, much of a stain on their life record, right? It's a pretty short list. Jesus obviously being the top of that, but you know, Daniel had a pretty unstained life record as far as we know. 
It's a pretty short list. Uh, and it just reminds us, when you look through all of uh, the, the recorded history that is for us in the Bible, that God uses imperfect people to do meaningful things. And that's really where I want to start this series this morning. Uh, I want to ask you a question uh, as, we, as we dig into the life of David, and it's this. How, how many of you would be willing to claim publicly... I remember, I don't know if they can see you at home, but I can see you. So people around you can see you. How many of you would claim publicly that uh, you have a stain-free life record? Anyone in the room that would say that in front of other people? A stain-free life record. Okay. You may think that about yourself, but at least you didn't raise your hand and admit it in front of other people. Uh, and I certainly would not do that. I can't. If, if uh, I was thinking about how I would describe this, if my... If my life record was a white button-up shirt, you know, like a dress shirt, if that, was, if that represented my life record, it would not be hard to find a few meatball stains on, on that shirt. It just wouldn't be. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be one who would claim that either. And certainly David's had a few, a few meatball stains on his life record as well. But it's proof that God uses imperfect people to do meaningful things. And Here's the other thing that we're going to learn about David today. Uh, we're going to learn that God uses unlikely people. Yes, imperfect people. There's plenty of examples, but there's also some neat examples, David's life included, uh, that God uses unlikely people, people that you wouldn't expect to do meaningful things in life. And this morning, especially, we're going to focus a lot more on the highlights from David's life, not so much on the stains on his life record today. Uh, we're going to focus a lot more on some of the really amazing things in his, in his life. Um, but even these moments from David's life that, that we admire, uh, what we're going to see today is they are evidence that God uses unlikely people, people that you wouldn't expect to do really meaningful things in life. And I hope that you're going to be encouraged by that this morning. I wonder if you've ever uh, heard stories maybe of... A missionary, let's say, a courageous missionary that uh, has gone off maybe into the, the bush in Africa and trusted God, left everything behind, uh, risked it all for Jesus. And you're like, man, that, that, I, wish, I wish I would have the courage to do something like that, something meaningful in life. Uh, or maybe you heard a sermon at some point uh, about uh, serving God or making disciples for Jesus, uh, and, and you felt as, as the, the sermon went on, there were these examples of people that did things like they started a Bible study where they worked, or uh, maybe they started a Bible study where they went to school. And you're like, man, that's, that's amazing. They really did something meaningful in, in life, and you felt inspired by that. Or maybe you heard a story about, we got plenty of examples like this of our church, people who have served behind the scenes for 30 plus years, just faithfully, things that you wouldn't even know that, uh, that they've done uh, throughout their career in ministry. Uh, they just serve faithfully behind the scenes. And, and you hear those stories like, man, that's amazing. I, I wish I had a story like that to tell. Or maybe people who, who give generously and uh, give sacrificially and so that uh, kids can go to camp, kids can go to conference, or so that we can, uh, we can invest in a new facility that we can hand to the generations be, be, uh, in, behind us, that are coming behind us, that will never even know who we are. And they'll benefit from our sacrifice uh, and generosity that we invest today. Um, and and you, maybe you hear stories like this and you wonder, I, I wonder 
I wonder if God could use me. I wonder if God could use someone like me to do something meaningful in life like that. Well, if you ever wondered that, we're going to explore this question together this morning. And what I hope we're going to land on uh, is the answer is yes, uh, but what is it that God's looking for? If, if the answer to that question is yes, God can use someone like you to do something meaningful in this life, well, what exactly is God looking for? So I'm going to ask you if you would join me in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is where we first meet David. David's story doesn't start with him as the king. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't, but it doesn't. David's story doesn't start with uh, David versus Goliath. That's not where his story begins. And I'm sure most of you would know that story. The story of David and Goliath is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Uh, it's a story that is referenced by people who have never even read the Bible. Uh, it's that famous. Uh, people that haven't even read the Bible, they know the, the reference, the phrase, David versus Goliath, and they know it uh, as a reference to the little guy taking on the big guy and the little guy winning, right? That's even in our culture. We've, we've seen it recently uh, in the, the news with the GameStop story. If you, if you saw that story, uh, this company GameStop, these little guy investors, they ran up the stock. They figured out a way to beat the, the big hedge fund companies at their own game, right? The little guy beat the big guy, and it was reported in the news as a David versus Goliath type of story by people that probably have never even read the Bible, and yet they know this reference as, uh, as the little guy taking on the big guy and winning. And certainly, the actual biblical record of David versus Goliath is an inspiring story of the little guy taking on the big guy and winning. But in its original context, in the Scripture, it's a story that has so much more meaning than that. It's an incredible story. Uh, but for us to really understand that story uh, in, its, in its context, to really appreciate it, uh, we, we need to understand uh, how we got to that place. When we get to it, and we will this morning, we're going to see that God uses uh, people that you wouldn't expect, uh, people like you and me, He uses normal people to do meaningful things in life. But we need to figure out or we need to understand how, do, how did David get to that moment in his life. If we understand that, then the story of David and Goliath is going to take on a whole lot uh, more meaning, a deeper meaning to us this morning. So here's, here's what we're going to do. You're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to give you some of the highlights in that chapter. We're going to walk through the story together of David's life, his early life. And there's one particular verse that we're going uh, to read together and uh, pull out some really, I think, important meaning out of it. So here's what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 16. God had sent his prophet Samuel to this little town of Bethlehem. You've heard of Bethlehem, right? Where do we know Bethlehem? Well, that's where Jesus was born, right? Uh, so Samuel is sent by God. He's a prophet of God sent to Bethlehem to meet this farmer named Jesse. Jesse is a farmer who's got eight sons, just a regular guy. He was, um, he's not famous, he's not rich, 
Uh, he's just a small-town farmer um, trying to raise his family, right? Normal guy. And the purpose of Samuel's visit to Bethlehem to meet Jesse is to covertly anoint the next king. The current king, Saul, and we'll talk more about him in weeks to come, the current king had lost favor with God because of his disobedience. And God had decided that he was going to take the throne away from Saul and give it to someone else. And the reason this was a covert operation, uh, the reason it was done under the radar, uh, is because Saul was uh, unpredictable, at times kind of nuts and violent. And the chances of Saul finding out that uh, uh, who the next king was going to be and doing something bad, the chances of that were pretty high. So this is a covert operation that God gives to Samuel to go to Bethlehem and anoint the new king. Uh, and as, as uh, he shows up in town, people are like, what's he doing here? We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Um, as you think about just the premise of the story, though, the beginning of the story, we, I think, should ask ourselves, well, who should we expect to be the new king? In chapter 13, God says to Saul, you're done. I'm done with you. I, I'm taking the throne from you. I'm going to give it to someone else. Well, who might we expect to be the next king? I know in modern-day America and uh, in ancient Israel, we don't have the same politics we don't have the same governmental system, but uh, our country was born out of England, and they do have a system there, a historic system of, of kings and queens and princes and princesses, and even today, although it's, uh, it's different than it used to be when it was an empire, they still kind of have you know, the kings and queens, princes kind of stuff, and so we have a reference point to how some of that works. And so when you think about who might you expect to be the next king, uh, our reference point would, would probably lead us to believe it's got to be, uh, the most obvious place would be Jonathan, who was Saul's son, right? That's, the prince is usually the next in line to be the king. That's pretty common in, in king-type uh, governmental systems. Um, the other scenario that would be most obvious would be like a military general. Like if things are really bad within the government and there's all these kinds of uh, power plays happening behind the scenes, oftentimes what you'll see is a coup and a military general takes over and usurps authority from the king. We've, we've seen stories like that throughout history as well. So when, when we think, well, who might it be? Those are probably the two most obvious choices that we might think, but, but God's the one choosing the king, not us, not the, not the people within the royal court, not King Saul. God is the one who's going to choose the next king, and he has a very different criteria that he uses. When you think about David, where we are in Bethlehem, Samuel shows up, and we kind of know what's coming, that David obviously is the one that's going to get chosen. Uh, if we asked ourselves, would we expect a shepherd that you never heard of from some town, some small village town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, from this farming family, is that who you would expect? I think most of us would say, well, no. And, and the, the story, when you read through the story, uh, the people in Bethlehem didn't expect Samuel to show up 
uh, to anoint one of their people as king either. In fact, when he shows up, they get really, really nervous. Like, why are you here, prophet of God? Uh, oftentimes, when prophets show up, you know, there's a judgment that's coming, right? So uh, they're nervous about why he's there. And remember, he's on a covert operation. And so he says, I'm here to make a sacrifice. And he invites Jesse and his family to be part of that sacrifice. So that's, and he does do all that. It's not a lie. He does do all those things. Uh, but he's got another reason for being there. And when he gets Jesse alone, uh, he tells him why he's there. And Samuel and Jesse start the search within Jesse's family among his sons for the next king. And they start where you and I would probably have started. They start with the oldest son, Eliab. And it says uh, in, let's see, verse 6, when, when uh, they arrived, Samuel took a look at Eliab, and he thought what you and I would probably have thought, what Samuel uh, was thinking, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This has got to be, this has got to be the guy. That's why Jesse brought him first. Jesse thought this has got to be the guy. Samuel takes a look at him. This has got to be the guy. But it wasn't. Look at verse 7. This is the verse I want you to pay close attention to. We're going we're gonna to use kind of, this is going to be our standing point throughout the sermon. Here we go. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height. Yeah, he's good looking. Yeah, he's tall. Uh, don't make that your criteria. For I have rejected him. Now, did the Lord reject him because he was tall? No. Did the Lord reject him because he was good-looking? No. Nothing wrong with being tall and good-looking. That's not the problem. But God says, the Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. The Lord looks at the heart. What was it that mattered to God? What was it that God was looking for? What is it that God is looking for uh, in you and me in order to do something meaningful in life? God is interested in the heart, not the outward appearance. As the story unfolds, uh, he's got eight sons. All, the first seven all go before Samuel, and God rejects them all, all seven. And it's interesting to me that David wasn't even uh, invited to the party originally. He's still out in the fields watching the sheep. They had to send someone out into the sheep fields to bring him in. He wasn't even invited. He was an afterthought to this whole scene. And I wonder what that moment was like for David when someone goes out to the fields to bring him in, fills him in on what's going on, and says, you need to go in, they're picking a new king, and you're, you might be the guy. I wonder in that moment uh, if David, you know, prior to that, if he's just out there in, in the fields, he's watching the sheep, and maybe he's, he's fidgety and he's nervous, and he's like, maybe today's the day, maybe today's the day that I get the call and I'm finally going to be king. You think that was on his mind? I don't think it was. I don't think he was expecting someone to come out and say, uh, Samuel's here and I think you might be the next king. Why was it, though, that God chose David. Well, we see what God says here in verse 7 of chapter 16, but I also want you to see this in chapter 13. Hold your finger there. We're coming right back. But go to chapter 13, verse 14. When, when God told Saul that he would no longer be the king, in verse 14, watch what happens. Verse 14, now your kingdom, speaking to Saul, must end. 
Here's, here's what he's talking about when, it, when he references David. Now, his name's not mentioned, but we now know who he's talking about. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord's already appointed him to be the leader of his people. Now, that's chapter 13, right? And when we get to chapter 16, now we know who God was talking about. But God already knew how, who he had picked out. He already knew it was going to be David. And the criteria was based on this young man's heart. As chapter 16 continues, the next scene uh, goes to King Saul and some of the things that, that were happening in his life. He was losing it mentally, emotionally. He was losing it. And we find out in chapter 16 that he was being tormented by an evil spirit. and He was making really bad decisions. And he was unpredictable and violent. And, and uh, in, in that setting, uh, the people around him were trying to figure out, how do we deal with this? How do, we de- how, do we deal- how do we help him? And someone came up with the advice, well, let's get you a harp player. We'll play some harp music. That seems to be soothing. Uh, let's, let's get you a harp player, and that'll calm you down. That'll help uh, these uh, these torments, these tormenting seasons that you're having. And, of course, the question at that point is, well, where are we going to get a harp player? Right? Harp music should calm me down. Where are we going to get a harp player? And I just want you to know, we get that question all the time here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, people are always asking. They're, they're writing in and saying, you know, our worship team's great. They really are. Our worship team's great. But, you know, we could use more cowbell. And, man, could you, could you find a harp player? I mean, that happens. That, that's a lie. That doesn't ever happen. Um, no one asked for a harp player, but, but someone did, and on this particular scene, uh, we need a harp player. Where are we going to find one? And it's, it's kind of a, a neat thing. Uh, at the end, I'm just going to read it to you, verse 18. One of the servants, so you have this conversation, need a harp player. Does anyone know one? One of the servants, don't even know his name, doesn't even tell us the servant's name. He's like, hey, I know one. He says, uh, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Really? Yes. And not only that, but he's a brave warrior, a man of war. Now, he's pushing a little bit, right? This is a guy. Now, he does have experience. We'll find out a little bit later. He has some experience in taking on bears and lions and things like that. But, you know, pushing a little bit with the brave warrior part. Uh, And he's got good judgment. And then he says he's also a fine-looking young man. And here's the important part. The Lord is with him. Well, how would he know the Lord is with him? Well, there's something about his character. There's something about David's heart uh, that when you spend time with him, you know that the Lord is with him. Have you ever been around someone that really loves Jesus? Can you tell? Right? Can you tell when you're around someone that loves God and that's living a Jesus-centered life? There's something about them. There's something in their heart that flows out of their mouth, out of their actions, out of their demeanor. Uh, there's just something about them. And where's that rooted? It's rooted in their heart. So we see that he's uh, described as uh, all these different descriptions and uh, that he's, the Lord is with him. And I, I would imagine that that last one wasn't too important to Saul. Based on what we've seen, Saul's actions and you know, his behavior, that last one probably didn't matter too much to Saul, but it mattered to God. And I just want to go back to that scene. I, uh, David's with the sheep again or whatever. And imagine, do you, do you think as he's with the sheep and someone comes up 
Do you think he was expecting someone to come up to him again and say, hey, David, listen, uh, I know that you've never been on Israel's Got Talent. I know you didn't uh, audition for this, but uh, the word's out, and you're the guy. Uh, you're the guy. You're going to be the personal musician to the king, right? So let a rip, tater chip. We got to go. Get your stuff, and let's go. Do you think he was expecting that to happen? I think he wasn't. I think he wasn't expecting that. But this was the opportunity that God had opened up for David. And why? We see it's rooted in in David's heart. David had a heart that God could use to do something meaningful in life. So I needed you to know those two things about David's life so that when we jump into the story of David and Goliath, you understand the context of what led up to that day. That backstory takes us to this moment, this showdown between between David and Goliath. In that moment, on that day, David was a part-time shepherd. He was a part-time musician for the king. And on that particular day, he was also a delivery boy, a lunch delivery boy for his brothers. So that's who David is in this moment. He's not this brave uh, warrior that has all of these battles under his belt. No, he's a part-time shepherd, part-time musician, part-time delivery boy for lunch uh, for his brothers when he shows up that day. His brothers, there's three older brothers that he has that are soldiers. And these soldiers, uh, when we get into chapter 17, we see these soldiers were out on this hill, and there's this like valley uh, below them, this big open space, and on the other side of the Philistines, Goliath being their champion, this nine-foot-tall giant. And every day, for 40 days, Goliath comes out, uh, and he bellows across uh, the, the, the valley, uh, all of these insults towards, the, towards God's army, all these insults towards God. And for 40 days, nobody does anything about it. David shows up, and this scene is happening, and he's listening, he's watching, and he hears what Goliath says about God, he hears what Goliath says about God's people, and he's looking around for the charge to start, and it doesn't happen, and he starts asking, what's, what's going on? Why, why is no one going out to, to take care of this guy? And uh, if you think about that day for David, it wasn't that he showed up that day with an axe to grind against a big giant. It wasn't that he showed up that day like one of these kind of guys is just looking for a fight. That, that was not his intention. He was bringing lunch to his brothers. But something clicked in him. Something stirred in his heart when he heard Goliath insulting God and insulting God's people. There was something in his heart that said, no, 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 we've got to do something. If you guys aren't, then I will. Where does that come from? That came from David's heart. And when he said that he was going to go out and fight Goliath, his brothers didn't believe that he could do it. Saul didn't believe that he could do it. But what did David believe? If you go to chapter 7, verse 37, we find out what David believed. As David is talking to Saul and saying, I'll go out and fight the giant. And Saul's like, you're a boy. What are you going to do? And uh, he's explaining to Saul, listen, I... When I'm watching my father's sheep, I I took on a bear and won. I took on a lion and won. And God helped me do those things. 
And uh, he says in chapter 17, verse 37, uh, uh, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the claws of the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. The God that helped me fight the bear and the lion will help me fight him. In other words, uh, David believed that God could beat Goliath. Not, uh, not himself. He wasn't so confident in, in himself as like an arrogant warrior. He believed that God could beat Goliath. And when that time finally came, when David stepped out into that field, and we're watching this unfold, he's got a sling and a stone, and he's going up against a nine-foot giant who's armed and ready for war. In that moment, in that scene, now we finally see what God saw all along. Now we finally can see the evidence of what God saw. We can see the heart of David. We can see that uh, the evidence that, he, that David had this heart that was willing to do the hard thing because it was the right thing. We see that David's heart, uh, there's this evidence that he's got this heart that, that God would be glorified. He didn't care what his brothers thought about him. He didn't care what Saul thought about him. He wasn't interested in, in the affirmation of other people. He wanted God to be glorified. That's a heart issue. We see evidence of this heart in David that trusts God, no matter what the circumstances look like. I mean, let's be honest. The circumstances of a young boy with a sling and a stone against a seasoned warrior like Goliath in this situation, there's no way that anyone is going to put down a dollar on David. And yet, David has this confidence that God, God can beat Goliath. And he just trusted God. That says something about David's heart. Now we can see why God chose David to do meaningful things in life. Because God could just see this humble, obedient heart in David. Listen, that's what God is looking for in a person that he can use to do meaningful things. He's looking at the heart. He's looking at the heart. Let me show you just the quick flip side of that. If you go to verse 17, chapter 17, Verse 28, remember his brother Eliab, the first one that God rejected, the oldest brother? This has got to be the guy, right? It's got to be the guy. He's tall. He's good looking. He's strong. He's a warrior. It's got to be the guy. And God said, no, it's not the guy. Because I'm looking at the heart, not the outward appearance. Well, what did God know that we didn't know? What did God know that Samuel and Jesse didn't know? Well, look how, how Eliab treats David, who just shows up with lunch. Right? He's, there to, he's there to do something nice for his brothers. He shows up with lunch. He sees what's happening. He starts asking questions like, what is going on? Verse 28, when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, his, his emotional response was anger. And, and he says, what are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? So his reaction is anger at his brother and then condescension towards his brother. That's his, that's his response. And he says, I, I, I know about your pride. I know about your deceit. He challenges, he looks at David and accuses him of having a bad heart condition, spiritually speaking. You just, you're just here to see the battle. And I love verse 29. It reveals to us uh, something about the family dynamic. 
Verse 29, what have I done now? The word now is, is important, right? What, it, it reveals to us that this is not the first time that he's had these kinds of conversations with Eliab. What, what's your problem? I, I brought you lunch, right? What did I do now? It reveals to us there is a pattern in Eliab's life. He's got an attitude problem. He's got these condescending comments towards his brother. And it's not the first time. Well, what does that tell us about Eliab? It tells us there's a problem in Eliab's heart. Oh, it's almost like God knew that about Eliab, right? Now we can see what God saw. We can see why God rejected Eliab. It was it, it, why, why God chose David over Eliab. It wasn't based on their appearance. It was based on their heart. I know I am, I'm sure many of you are very thankful as well, that the gospel of salvation is rooted in a heart of faith, not, not based on how much money we have. It's not based on how many degrees we have hanging on the wall. It's not based on how good looking we are. It's rooted in a heart of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, when we get down to verse 18, Paul writes this about the gospel. He says, the message of the cross, what's that message? The message that we are sinners that can't save ourselves, that Jesus, God in the flesh, came and, and died in the, on the cross as a sacrificial payment for our sin. Right? That's the message of the cross, that we couldn't save ourselves, so Jesus came to do that for us so that we could be made right with God. He says the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, we know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligence. So where does that leave the philosophers and the scholars and the brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Believe with our hearts, right? It's a heart of faith that believes the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended by that. The Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This, quote, foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Here's the part that I want you to see. So he's talking about uh, the, the gospel uh, is, is not something that you, you figure out because you're smarter than everybody else, uh, because uh, your philosophical understanding is somehow more superior to other people. No, it's, it's a message that is simple, that doesn't make sense to the philosophers, that doesn't make sense to the scholars, because it's not rooted in what they understand in human reason. You mean to tell me that God would send His own Son to die for people that may or may not uh, accept that, it doesn't make sense to the philosopher and to the scholar. It's not rooted in how we deal uh, with forgiveness with each other. Verse 26, 
he says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. That wasn't why God uh, offered you salvation. It wasn't rooted in your intelligence or your looks or your wealth or lack thereof. Instead, God chose the things of the world that the world considers foolish in order to shame the wise, uh, those who think that they're wise. Though he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose the despised things of the world, uh, things, that, uh, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers to be important. And as a result, no one will ever boast in the presence of God. You and I are not made right with God because we're smarter than other people, because we're more generous than other people, because uh, we made less bad choices in life than other people. We are made right with God solely uh, through a heart of faith in Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. That's the only thing that qualifies us for for forgiveness of sin, the only thing that qualifies us for eternal life. We need a heart of faith. It's a heart issue when it comes to salvation from sin. The gospel truth, we're thankful for that, is also true when it comes to whether or not God uh, can use a person to do meaningful things in life. It's a heart issue. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 often get quoted. You can look at it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 often get quoted when we talk about the gospel. It's not, uh, our salvation is not based on our works. Uh, it's not based on our behavior. Uh, God doesn't have a cosmic scale that He weighs out, or you're good enough. That doesn't, that's not how God does it, and we're thankful for that, because it, it would never tip in our favor. Uh, it's, the, it's the gift of God's grace that He offers to us, and we receive it through faith. It's a heart of faith, right? So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is very, very uh, famous when we talk about the gospel. But then verse 10 is fascinating, because verse 10, even though verses 8 and 9 says it's not about works, verse 10 comes back and addresses the issue of works, and says that God has created good works for us to do. He's created these opportunities for us to do. He already has them planned out for you and for me in advance. And that's important, to know that God has these opportunities for you to do meaningful things in life is important. And the difference between those who make the most of those opportunities and those who do not is the heart. That's the difference. It's not those who are smarter, those who are better looking, or those who are well. It's, that's not the difference. The difference is the heart. A, a humble servant's heart is going to trust God no matter what the circumstances look like in front of them. A, a, a heart that God can use is willing to do the hard things because they're the right things. A heart that God can use is obedient even, even when no one else in the room is obedient to God. The heart that God can use uh, is, is that obedient, humble servant's heart to do meaningful things in life. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I, I see these examples that you've, you've given to us this morning. You, you brought up Samuel. You brought up, you brought up David. Uh, and I can see how God chose Samuel as a prophet. That's a pretty meaningful thing in life. And God chose David to become a king and, and fight the Philistines. That's a... That's a pretty meaningful thing in life, but 
I just don't know that God's calling me to do anything meaningful in life. You might wonder that when you look at those examples and then you look at your own life. I don't know. I want to be used by God to do meaningful things, but can God use me? to do meaningful things. I, I don't think that, maybe you're thinking, I don't think God's called me to be a pastor of a big church like Andy Stanley and write all these books like he did. I don't think uh, that God's calling me to be a famous missionary like James Gribble, who went into the heart of the CAR, and because of his sacrifice, uh, there, are more, there are more Christians in, in Central African Republic, uh, as far as our church family, our Karis family, there's more churches there than there are in America. Right? And because of his sacrifice 100 years ago, uh, it's incredible what uh, God used him for. Like, I don't think God's calling me to go and, and, and do that. I don't think God's maybe calling me to do something like a military chaplain. We have Mark Penfold uh, here this past summer, and a military chaplain. Those guys, uh, those chaplains go into harm's way, just like soldiers do, with no weapon. And they do that. They take that risk on. Uh, in order to make an impact in people's lives, uh, in these soldiers' lives, when, when things are tense and they've got stuff going on at home, and right, they, they put themselves in harm's way in order to make a difference through the gospel in these people's lives. And I, don't, I don't know that God's calling me to do something meaningful like that. Um, maybe you would say, I don't think God's calling me to be this famous Christian author like uh, Francis Chan or Max Lucado. I mean, those guys, you know, Billy Graham, those are the guys that God chose to do meaningful things in. And I just don't see that happening. I don't know that God would do meaningful things in me. And if, if that's what you're thinking, I want you to know that our world defines meaningful things uh, as being famous. I think our world, our culture, equates those two things. Meaningful things and being famous in our culture mean the same thing. It's why some people will take political advice, they will take life advice from a celebrity who has no clue what they're talking about. If they weren't famous, you would, you would look at that person and say, you're an idiot. Why would that come out of your mouth? But because they're a celebrity, there are people who will listen to what they are saying and, oh, that, that, must, that must be true. That's what our culture does. It equates uh, fame... Uh, with somehow uh, knowing what you're talking about or, or doing meaningful things. But we've already seen this morning, that's not, what, that's not how God sees the world. It's not how God sees you. It's not how God sees me. God has a very different definition of meaningful things. And I'll give you an example from my own life. By God's grace, I hope, by God's grace alone, that over 20 years of ministry... I hope and pray that I've made some impact in people's lives in a meaningful way. I would hope that that would be true. But what I want you to know, uh, I, I want you to know about the meaningful things that people have done throughout those 20 years and even prior to those 20 years of ministry. I, I want you to know about the meaningful things that people have done in my life that impacted me. So if I have in any way even a small way, made an impact in some people's lives in ministry, there are things that maybe you'll never know about other than the next five minutes of me telling you about it that people have done that were meaningful to me, that impacted my heart. I look back over my life and I could tell you uh, about people early on in my life like Sunday school teachers. 
Sunday school teachers that, number one, put up with me, and number two, they, they, they taught me the importance of memorizing Scripture. That impacted my life. I, I think about some of the camp counselors that you'll never meet, you'll never know who they were, but there's some camp counselors that I could point to uh, throughout the however many years that I went to, to camp that made an impact in my life in a significant way. I think about um, early on in, in my life, I can remember uh, some ladies, I've told this story before, uh, and I love telling this story, there's some ladies that helped out with VBS, and their job that week, in case of Bible school, uh, their, their job that week was to give out cookies and, and do the snack, right? And I'm, I'm pretty sure now that I think about it, that's where my cookie addiction started. I'm pretty sure I can blame it on those ladies, but um, that's, that's for therapy, that's not for you, so we'll, we'll deal with that later. Uh, but what I remember about those ladies, uh, the reason why that moment was so significant for me, it wasn't really even about the cookie. It was about how they treated me and how they treated the people at that snack table. They were doing that because they loved the kids and they wanted every one of those kids to feel loved and special like they mattered. And they, they pulled it off. They did it. They accomplished that. It was meaningful in my life that I still remember it today. I want you to know about people in my life that uh, pray, that have prayed for me, that pray for my family, that pray for my marriage, that pray, pray for this ministry throughout the years. And, and you'll probably never even know who they are. I know who they are. And uh, that has made a significant difference and an impact in my life. I, I want you to know about my youth leaders when I was a teen that, that sacrificed vacation time. Like they only have so many weeks vacation and they gave up a week's vacation from their job in order to take us to a momentum conference for a youth conference. And year after year, those youth conferences made an impact in my life, made an impact on my heart. And it was because uh, those youth leaders were willing to give up and sacrifice some vacation time to do that. Um, you know, th these, are, these are the stories of people doing meaningful things. And I'm one person, right, in a relatively small church in the middle of kind of like nowhere, right? And, and, and I, I do hope that God's used my ministry to do some, uh, some good things. And hopefully by the time I retire, that's still true. But you need to know that it's that if there is any of that impact, you can trace that back to so many people doing meaningful things in the life of another person. And those things matter. Those things matter. Doing meaningful things for God. Those people aren't superstars. They're not famous. And they weren't people, uh, perfect either, right? They weren't people who had uh, stainless life records. They're regular people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ trying to live a Jesus-centered life, and they made an impact in another person's life because of it. So maybe, maybe God's not going to choose you to be a king. Maybe God is not going to choose you to fight a giant. Maybe God's not going to choose you to play music for royalty. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to use you to do meaningful things. Could God use you to make a difference in someone's life by the way that you treat them? by the things that you do to care for them and demonstrate love to them? Yeah, the answer is yeah. Could God use your talents in, in music or maybe athletics or maybe in, uh, in art, 
perhaps even in academics, could God use what he's gifted you with to bring glory to himself and to impact other people's lives? The answer is yes. Could God put you in a place of influence, maybe where you work, maybe in your community, to be a leader? And as that leader offering a biblical worldview to the discussion of how are we going to deal with this problem, how are we going to handle this situation, and to be a leader in the community, a leader where you work, to offering a, a biblical worldview matters. You can make a difference, and God could use you in those situations. Could, could God be calling you to, to stand up for Him, to do hard things because it's the right thing, to obey Him, even when no one else in the room is willing to do that? No one else in the room has the courage to stand up and do the right thing. Could God use you in that moment? Yeah, He could. Could God be calling you into some type of full-time ministry? Could God be calling you to be a missionary? There are people that God may press on their hearts to go and do those kinds of, of ministries. And you might not be the, the person that, uh, that other people would expect. In fact, you might not even expect that of yourself. Think of David. He's out in the fields, and there's twice that people show up and say, hey, by the way, you're the next king. By the way, you're the, you're, you're the musician for the king. He wasn't expecting those things. And maybe you're not going to expect what God chooses to do in you and through you. You might be the last person you would imagine that God could choose to do something meaningful in this life. But God is not looking for the smartest. God's not looking for the prettiest. God's not looking for the strongest. God's not looking for the wealthiest people that He can find to do those meaningful things. I want to clarify something. Maybe you are all of those things. Maybe you're really smart. Maybe you're super good looking. That's okay. We're not going to beat you up because you're super good looking, right? We're not going to kick you out of our church because you're pretty or you're handsome. Maybe you are strong. Maybe you are wealthy. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. David was all those things. David was good looking. He was smart. He was talented. He was brave. It's not that God excludes people who are those things, who have those qualities. He doesn't exclude them, but it's not the basis by which he chooses to use people to do meaningful things. God is interested in your heart. The Lord, I'm going to read it to you one more time, the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Is your heart humble? Is your heart obedient? And God can use you to do meaningful things. Here's the challenge that I want you to take with you. We could all agree that, I think we could all agree that uh, what God says about the heart is, is what he means, that he's not looking at your outward appearance, that that's who God's looking for, someone with an obedient, humble heart. Fine. The takeaway is this. What are you doing to develop that heart? What are you doing to develop a servant's heart, to develop an obedient, humble heart? What are you doing uh, in, in your life right now that is going to result in a heart that God can use to do meaningful things? Because it's one thing to know that that's who God's looking for. It's another thing to be pursuing, to, uh, becoming that kind of person. If you know the answer to that question, and some of you do, and you're doing it, you're doing those things, keep it up. Don't get lazy. Don't become apathetic. Don't quit. Keep it up. 
Keep being the person. Keep pursuing uh, the, the, this heart that God can use to do meaningful things. If you know the answer to that question, but you're not doing it, then my challenge to you is repent and, and start making some changes. Start pursuing the things you already know. Some of you know. You already know what you need to be doing. You're just not doing it. Okay, well, that can start to change today. If you don't know the answer to that question, and that's possible, you hear the question, what, am, what do I need to do to have this heart that God can use, and you don't know the answer, I'm going to challenge you with two things. Number one, I want to challenge you to go uh, to either the end of the digital notes or the end of the live stream page. There's a button there that says, I'm ready. When you hit that button that says, I'm ready, there's some information there about uh, how you can begin a faith, a heart of faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because that's where the heart changes. The heart changes through the power of the resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit that we receive when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. It has to start there. That's the heart level change. That's where it begins. And if you would say, okay, I, I've, I've done that. I've trusted Christ as my Savior, but I still don't really know how to answer that question. I, I haven't really done much more than, than, than trust Christ as my Savior as far as my faith is concerned. I haven't really walked much farther down the road than that on my journey of faith. Okay, then my challenge to you would be, please keep coming back. Please keep coming back uh, here Sundays or watching uh, these sermons every Sunday. Get into a grace group. Because as a church here at Grace Fellowship, we talk about heart change. We talk about living a Jesus-centered life every single week. So if you want to learn uh, what that is and how to pursue it, that's what we're all about. And we can help you with that week after week after week. If you're committed to being here, if you're committed to watching, if you're committed to being in a small group, we can help you. Because that's who we want to be as a church, a church that helps people live Jesus-centered lives.